Well, good morning. Could do better. Good morning. All right, it's good to be awake at the beginning of the sermon, right? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Daniel. We're going to be starting a new series uh, this morning, and it's on the Old Testament book of Daniel. And So if you have your own Bibles, you can look uh, in the index if you don't know where it is. If you have a pew Bible and you want to use one of those, the book of Daniel starts on page, well, roughly 719, uh, but we are going to begin with Daniel chapter 3. So uh, Daniel chapter 3, I guess, is a good place to start in your Bibles. Uh, If you don't have access to either of those texts, the text, uh, the text we'll be looking at, three of them, will be up on the screen. And so, as I said, we're starting a new series uh, for the next few weeks here on the, this wonderful Old Testament book called Daniel. It's full of wonderful things. Some of the most familiar stories uh, to, to us as Christians is found, are found in the book of Daniel. And then also some of the most uh, confusing prophecy is also found in the book of Daniel. So it's a wonderful mix of story and prophecy and God's sovereignty over the earth. So Daniel uh, chapter 3 is where we're going to be, and we'll actually be in two or three different texts within the book. So hope you're there. I've entitled the sermon series for this next few weeks, Faith in the Fire. Faith in the Fire, that is, how can we live as Christians in the midst of a culture under governments and uh, facing uh, friends and family that... Uh, increasingly see us as a minority that are increasingly hostile to us. How do we live in this kind of a world where I think the book of Daniel can give us lots, lots of good ideas, lots of helpful principles about living uh, out our faith in the midst of the fire of this world? So I trust that you're there in the book of Daniel. Let's pray, and we'll dive right into this overview of the book of Daniel. So if you'll pray with me one more time. Father, we ask that you would bless your word. We ask that you uh, would Protect us from the evil one, the one who, wants, who wishes to uh, distract us now, the one who wishes to get our mind on Sunday lunch or Sunday afternoon events or work or whatever it is that we have to do today. Uh, would you protect our minds and help us to focus? Would you give us energy to sit and listen to your word as it's preached? Would you give us enthusiasm? Would you give us joy? It is your holy word, your scripture to us through the lives and the stories and the prophecies of men of old, and yet you speak to us today. Your word is living, it's alive, it's living and it's active, and it pierces our very hearts and our souls, and so we ask that it would do that today. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and that you would enable me to speak words that are truthful, not false, words that are helpful and not hurtful, and words that would be ultimately challenging to us as we seek to live out our faith in the midst of the fire of this world that is increasingly hostile to us. And so help us, we pray, in the name of Jesus and all of God's people said, amen, amen. Well, I, don't, I think it's easy to say, and I think it's a truthful statement. I don't know if anybody who's a Christian would necessarily disagree with me, but we live in a time today that is increasingly unpopular to be a Christian. Uh, to be more specific, we live in a time where it is increasingly more difficult, increasingly harder, increasingly more unpopular to be an evangelical Christian. That is to be a Bible-believing, truth-seeking, gospel-preaching, Jesus-loving Christian. It's hard. It's hard for us today. And I'm no prophet. I can't predict the future. But my guess is that as our world and as our society continues to to become increasingly secular and hostile and irreligious, or at least 
uh, hostile to Christianity. My guess is that that trend will not be reversing anytime soon. And so as Christians, we find ourselves in a place in history in which we have to learn lessons from the past. We have to learn lessons from men and women of old, from saints who have gone before us, who have lived in hostile environments, from people who have lived in much more, much more hostile environments, much more hostile governments uh, than we do today. And so we turn to this wonderful book of Daniel as we live in a society, as Daniel did, that was very hostile, or at least increasingly hostile to Christians. And so just this week, I I ran across three examples of this. So I'd like to share these examples with you. Uh, If you pay attention to the news, in particular if you read Christian blogs, what you'll find out is that these kind of stories, uh, these kind of things are happening uh, exponentially. They're increasing dramatically. It is becoming harder to be a Bible-believing Christian these days. Uh, there's a story out of the Washington Post uh, about a gospel, uh, about a, an award-winning gospel musician, an award-winning Christian gospel musician, and his name is Donnie McClurkin. And uh, there's a picture of him right there, Donnie McClurkin. He is a Christian, and uh, he is uh, one of the best kind of gospel musicians around. I don't like gospel music per se, so I don't, I don't know of him, but I, I did get on and and read a little bit about him. Uh, interesting man. He's very talented. So the Washington, uh, the Washington Post reports just this week uh, the following, and I'll read it, that, quote, award, the award-winning Christian gospel musician Donnie McClurkin claims, and uh, he has a little blog post on his, uh, a web, web video on his blog to explain this, claims that he was uninvited that he was uninvited to a concert that was being held in a mall in Washington, D.C. that was celebrating MLK, Martin Luther King, and the 50th, the 50th anniversary of his march on Washington due to, due to what? Why was he uninvited at the last minute when he was indeed the headliner of this show happening in the mall? He, he claims that the, the mayor of D.C. called him up and said, listen, I don't want you to come anymore. And he said, essentially, why is that? And it was because comments that he had made about 10 years ago about what he believes about human sexuality, about what he believes about sexuality being for a, a man and a woman, about comments that he made about homosexuality. They were not uh, rude. They were not flippant. He was just stating what he believed. And so the mayor called him up and said, we've come to understand that this is your stance and we do not want you to come anymore. This is what uh, McClurkin says in his own words, quote, it is unfortunate that in today's world, a black man, a black artist is uninvited from a civil rights movement depicting love, unity, peace, and tolerance. These are the kind of things that are happening increasingly in our world. On that subject of human sexuality, I don't know if you're a sports fan or not, but about, I don't know, two or three months ago, uh, the story broke that Jason Collins, uh, who is an African-American basketball player in the NBA, came out of the closet. He uh, came out, he was the first, I think the first professional athlete, active athlete, to to come out of the closet to say that that he was, uh, to say that he was gay. And uh, the story goes on to show that there was a, a comment on it. You can imagine ESPN was talking all about it. And ESPN has a man by the name of Chris Broussard. Chris Broussard is one of their longtime NBA analysts. And so he was talking with uh, whoever it was on the show, and they were talking about this. And uh, Chris was very polite. He was very forthright. He said, I, I think it was a very, uh, a very 
a difficult thing for this man to do, but however, I, I just don't agree with his view of human sexuality. And he went on to talk about, because he was a Christian, this informed his thought on human sexuality. And what happened was that he nearly, he nearly got fired from his job on ESPN for simply saying, I'm a Christian who believes these things. Uh, these things are increasingly uh, prevalent in our world. Uh, so what I want us to see is that it, we li- we're living in a culture that's hostile to us. And not only that, but we're living in a culture where it's increasingly abnormal to be a, a born-again Bible-believing Christian. Uh, when you read the Pew uh, statistics, what you find out is that upwards of 78% of Americans claim to be Christians. And so you look at that and you're like, wow, that's, that's a lot. Almost 80% of our culture uh, claim to be associated with Christianity. But when you do a little bit more research like this book did, I'll show it on the screen, uh, uh, Dickerson's book, The Great Evangelical Recession, suggests that these kind of statistics are very skewed because these are this pe- just people who claim to be Christians, but he kind of went through a series of questions that would kind of mark a person as an evangelical, Bible-believing, gospel-believing Christian. And he estimates that in our culture today, uh, upwards of 8%, Upwards of 8% of Americans are what we would consider truly born-again Christians. And the point is, is that uh, as um, uh, Christianity shrinks, in a sense, to those who are truly born-again Christians, and our, our, our culture becomes increasingly hostile, what happens is, is that the culture around us takes on values that are non-Christian. I think many of you who've lived longer than me would say that our, our American culture has changed over the last 15, 20 years. Over the last 50 years, for sure, you would say that American values have shifted on a whole host of issues and have become less than Christian, if not anti-Christian. In this time, Article Magazine, which I think is just the recent Time Magazine article that just happens to be coming out, is indicative of the culture shift in these values. Uh, you can, I don't know if you can read that, but I'll read it for you. The title is The Child-Free Life. The Child-Free Life. And the subtitle goes this way. When having it all means not having children. Uh, I've just read a, a small excerpt of this, but my guess is that this is uh, an article saying that, um, that it's a good thing to, to not have kids. You can really be fulfilled as a family uh, without having kids. Uh, something that as Christians we value Children, their blessings from the Lord. And so all that to say, we can move uh, beyond that picture. All that to say is we live in a world where having faith in this kind of fire is difficult. So how do we manage? I mean, how do we, how do we live this kind of life? Well, I think the book of Daniel is going to help us. And what I hope to do is, is four things. So if you're taking notes, just jot down these four things. This is an overview of the book of Daniel. Next week, we'll get into chapter one. But four things that I want us to see about the book of Daniel. First of all, I want us to see the significance of the book of Daniel. That is, what is its message to us? What's the primary thrust? If you could summarize the book of Daniel, what is it telling us? We're going to see the significance of the book. And then second, we're going to see the setting of the book. That is, What's the historical setting? What's going on in history when the book of Daniel was written? Third, we're going to see the structure. That is, how does the author, whom is Daniel, how does Daniel lay out his argument to us? How does he, how does he structure it? We'll talk about that. 
And then fourth, we'll talk about the subjects. The subjects, that is the main themes, some of the things that will be repetitive that you'll see as we go throughout the book of Daniel. I would suggest to you three subjects, there could be more, but three big things, reoccurring themes that we see in the book of Daniel. So let's get started. Let's, first of all, Let's talk about the significance. So what I'm putting up, uh, up front is, is this. If, if you don't get anything else today, get this. If you're, if you're not listening, listen now. Okay, now don't tune out later, but this is the most important thing, okay? If you want to know what Daniel is about, in my humble opinion, uh, I'm going to give you two phrases. The first is longer, and the, sh- the second is shorter, and I want you to write down the second. The first major takeaway, the first uh, statement is this. This is what I think is the significance of the book of Daniel. Though the world's kingdoms, though the world's kingdoms may appear to be independent of God's control, he rules over them now, currently, and will one day destroy them and bring about his everlasting kingdom. Therefore, how should we live? Therefore, we must remain faithful in the fire. Now that's the longer statement, right? That's what I think Daniel is teaching us. Let me just break it down a bit. Though the world's kingdoms may appear to be independent of God's control. Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever watch the news? You flip on the news and you see everything that's happening from natural disasters to all sorts of evil in the world, both in our backyard and and, and across the nations. And we tend to think, God, are you in control? God, are you really doing something here, God? Because all of these people, the governments, dictators, people, our friends, our neighbors, the nations of the world and their kingdoms seem to us oftentimes as if God is not involved, as if they are just doing whatever they want and they are giving God the old Uh, I don't care what you say. So it seems like oftentimes, and it seemed like to Daniel and his friends that this is what was happening. It seemed like to them that maybe the nations of the world were acting independently of God, and we'll talk about why that is here in a second. Though that seems to be the case, the truth of the matter is what Daniel tells us. The truth is that even in the midst of kingdoms and rulers and governments doing all sorts of things that are anti-Christian, that are hostile to Christianity, the truth is, is that God is ruling over them. The truth is, is that they are not out of God's control. He rules over them now. He is moving history towards a purpose and an end. So not only does he rule over them now, but one day he will destroy them. That's a big theme of the book of Daniel. Although it looks like the world is in chaos and these kingdoms are doing whatever they want, God's kingdom is coming. His kingdom is coming, and in those days, all of the kingdoms of the earth will not stand. They will not stand against our king. And he will bring in an everlasting kingdom. So what should we do? What does the book of Daniel have to say about how we live while we're waiting for that kingdom? Essentially, we need to remain faithful in the fire. The book of Daniel is all about being faithful morally, being faithful theologically, being faithful with all that we are in the midst of that which is difficult. So here's a catchy way. I want you to write this down. Maybe it's on the screen or maybe it's not. Good, it's not. Here's a catchy way. Write this down. If you don't remember all that, remember this. Have faith in the fire. Have faith in the fire because God foretells a flourishing future. 
I just wanted to use S, right? So there it is. Have faith in the fire because God foretells a flourishing future. That is the message, I believe, of this wonderful book of Daniel that we'll make our way through. So that's, that's the significance, remaining faithful in the fire. So what's the setting? So what is the context in which Daniel uh, is born out of? What's the, what's the story that helps us relate to what's going on? Well, Daniel was born in the last days of the southern kingdom of Israel called Judah. So you may remember after there was a divided kingdom, right? Solomon was the, the last ruler over a united Israel, and the kingdoms broke. The, the, the kingdom on the north was called Israel proper, and the kingdom on the, on the south was called Judah. And it went that way until they were both exiled. So Daniel lives in the southern part of Israel, the kingdom called Judah, and he lives in the last days of that kingdom. That is, their kingdom is about to be taken over by a pagan, godless ruler, ruthlessly taking God's people and deporting them far, far away from their homes. He lives, and he lived, I should say, in a very difficult time. As a teenager, we don't know how old, but most likely Daniel was a teenager. So maybe you're a teenager here. Listen, the book of Daniel, at least for several chapters, is about a teenager living in the midst of a corrupt society and being faithful to God. So if you want to know how to be a teenager and how to live faithful to God, Daniel is the guy to look at. So it's going to be exciting, hopefully for you, to see him to see him do that. But as the book begins, he's, he's young. He's a teenager, and he and some of his friends and some of the nobility of Judah were taken away to the land called Babylon. It was uh, northeast of them, many, many miles away. Babylon was the emerging world power. And so all of this transpired as the kingdoms of the world were, sh- were shifting. Egypt was the great world power until Babylon came along with Nebuchadnezzar. He was first the commander, he became the king, and Things were happening around the the country of God's people. Power was shifting. And so essentially what happened is that the Babylonian Empire moved southward to fight against Egypt, and they defeated them in the battle known as the Battle of Carchemish. It doesn't really matter, but there was a battle down south. They defeated them, and as they were chasing the Egyptians further south, the Egyptians apparently made their way into the land of Judah. And so what had happened is this king, uh, king to be Nebuchadnezzar, said, well, while we're chasing these Egyptians, this looks like a good place to raid. And they raided Jerusalem. They took some of the royal uh, goodies, some of the gold, some of the silver, the things that were very valuable, and they also took some of the people that were very valuable. They didn't take a ton of people, but they took the cream of the crops. So it would be like, God forbid, China invading America and going to the best universities and the best government officials and saying, we want you and you and you and you because you're bright and you're handsome and you're smart and you can serve in our kingdom. So we're moving you to China. That's essentially what happened to Daniel and his friends. They got moved far, far away. So the first three essentially, and in 586, what eventually happened is that Judah, the, the homeland where, where Daniel came from, was utterly destroyed. The temple was burned. It was razed. The walls of Jerusalem were destroyed, and many, many, many of God's people living in the south were exiled and were deported, made to move far, far away to a land that was very hostile, to a land of foreign gods in slavery, essentially. That is the setting of the book of Daniel. So I hope that helps you understand. When we see Daniel living in his time, he is living in a, under a pagan king, in a pagan culture that is very much hostile to his God. 
And so he's going to give us some really good lessons about how to do that. So we've seen, we've seen the significance, right? We've seen the setting. Well, what about the structure? How does this book lay out? So uh, essentially, there are two structures to the book of Daniel. The first one, on the surface, is very easy. If you read the book of Daniel all the way through, it's 12 chapters. It's not that long. Maybe it takes you 30 minutes. And what you'll see very clearly is the book is divided into a couple sections. Uh, we'll get to that in a minute. The book is divided into a couple sections. First of all, we see in chapters 1 through 6, uh, Daniel... Chapters 1 through 6 are essentially stories. So if you like all the great stories from Daniel, like the lion's den and the fiery furnace and the handwriting on the wall, all these stories that we learn as kids come from uh, this this portion, chapters 1 through 6. It's his practice there in Babylon. It's stories about he and his friends. But then once you get to chapter 7 and you move to the end of the book, it's about Daniel's prophecy. So it's not just stories, although there's a a context. It's Daniel, his visions, his dreams, as God reveals to him both the history of some of the pagan nations at the time and the, the, the history of what would be of God's people, uh, Israel, there in his day. So that's, that's kind of on the surface. It's, it's, it's easy to see. But when you go under the surface, if you were to read this in its original handwriting, something would, would really pop out at you because what would happen is you would read chapter 1 and it would be in Hebrew. It would be in your native language and you'd be like, okay, this is all good. And when you get to chapter 2, the language would change on you. It would change to a language called Aramaic, which is very similar to Hebrew. But for chapters 2 through 7, it's not in Hebrew, Daniel's native language. It's in Aramaic, which is kind of the, the language of the day. It was like English. Everybody in our world, for the most part, wants to know or speak English. That's kind of how Aramaic was. And so Daniel knew and spoke and wrote in Aramaic. And so it would be like this. If you're reading a book, you go and you buy a book at the bookstore. And you're like, this is a great book. I can't wait to get into it. And you read the first chapter and it's in English. And you're like, this was so good. I'm going to go into chapter 2. And when you go into chapter 2, it's in French. And you're like, uh, <laughs> and let's just pretend that you knew French and you could read it. And you're like, okay. And you keep reading and, and the next six chapters are in French. And then the rest of the book switches back to English. That would be very odd, right? But that's exactly how the book of Daniel is written. And it's that way for a purpose. A couple purposes, really. What we see in this middle chunk, chapters 2 through 7, is that Daniel, through God's inspiration, writes about the futures of the pagan kingdoms to come. So Daniel writes in a language that everyone would know because he wants all the nations to know what's going to happen to them, right? And then verses chapters, chapter 1 and then chapter uh, 7 through 12, he goes back and he writes it to God's people. He writes it in a language to, to just the Jews who would understand it and be able to comprehend. And in that section, it's all about Israel. It's about their future as it relates to these pagan nations in the future. So that's, that's a little bit about the, the context. Another very interesting thing, if we'll fl- uh, flip the slide, is that you see some parallelism. And this is how we're going to take it. Uh, we're going we're to combine chapters. When you look at this section in Aramaic, what you're going to find out, and, and go, go home and read Daniel. Just read it, read chapters 2 through 7, and you'll see the structure. Thematically, it's very the same. Uh, chapter 2, we get a vision. There's a vision of four kingdoms. There's a statue, and it's, it's prophetic. And if you were to read chapter 7, you would get another vision about four coming kingdoms, although instead of being a statue, they're portrayed as these crazy wild beasts. We'll get there when we get there. But we see a vision in chapter 2 and 7 of these four future kingdoms to come. Well, then when you read chapter 3, it's a story. It's a story about God protecting his people in the midst of persecution. Daniel chapter 3 is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and who? 
Abednego, right? Uh, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, and God, God protects them. Well, when you get to chapter 6, it's the story of Daniel and the lion's what? Den. Daniel and the lion's den, and God supernaturally protecting his faithful people. So we get this parallelism, and right in the middle, chapters 4 and 5, we see these wonderful stories of God humbling these pagan kings. God humbles Nebuchadnezzar. You remember how he does that? He, he turns him, he makes him go crazy, and he acts like a beast, right, for we think seven years. He humbles him because he wants him to know, listen, you may be the most powerful man on the world, but I am God, okay? I'm God. And then that happens again in chapter 5. God humbles uh, Belshazzar. That was essentially his grandson, I believe. He humbles these kings. And so we're going to take those sections together as we go through this book. So we've seen the significance and the setting and a bit about the structure. What about the subjects as we close our time? What are some of the themes that you'll see throughout the book reoccurring over and over again? Let me suggest three. Number one, faithfulness to God. This is a huge theme. I think it's the theme in the book of Daniel that we as God followers, uh, they as Jews back then, and us as Christians under the new covenant, we should be faithful to God. We need to obey God even when it costs us. We need to stand firm in our morals, in our practice, in our doctrine, without compromise, even when it's costly. That is a huge thrust. We see this in the response of Daniel's friends to worship an idol. Let's turn now to chapter 3 of the book of Daniel and look briefly at Daniel chapter 3 verses 16 through 18. This is a, a significant statement. Remember Daniel's friends bow down. They say no. Into the furnace you go. And then what do they say? They say this. 3 16 through 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hands. But, and that's an important but, but even if he does not, even if he doesn't, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. They are a picture of lack of compromise. They refuse to compromise. And so it, 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 it addresses questions that we may have. When we live our life in this kind of culture, in this kind of setting, things that come up into our mind, questions that we have, can I be sure can I be sure? Can I, is my faithfulness to God in the midst of all of this temptation, in the midst of all of this enticement, in the midst of all of this compromise, in the midst of all of the teenagers that are in my school that are wanting me to do certain things, in the midst of my coworkers who are pushing me, and my boss who wants me to do something that I'm not comfortable with, with my spouse who's not a Christian, and they, and they want us to do this with our money. In the midst of this kind of a, of a culture, is it, is it worth it? Is it worth it to be faithful to God, we may ask? And the book of Daniel gives a resounding yes, yes, it is worth it to be faithful to God. Secondly, the sovereignty of God. Not only our faithfulness to God, but the fact that God is sovereign. This may also be the major theme, if not the second major theme. That is, God rules over all people, all kings, all pagan nations, all godly nations, his people, everyone. God sovereignly rules over all of history. And we see a pagan king tell us this in his own words. Nebuchadnezzar, after being restored from this God-induced insanity, says this about his sovereignty. Chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 34 through 35. 
chapter 4, 34 through 35. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever, saying this, his dominion is an eternal dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He, notice this, church, he does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. He does in heaven and in earth everything he wants to do. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Huge. Nobody can say to God, why did you do that? That was wrong for you to do that. When God uh, holds out his proverbial hand to do something, nobody can slap it and say, no, 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 God, you can't do that. They can't slap his hand, right? He is sovereign over the affairs of mankind. And it answers questions that we have when we live in the midst, like Daniel did, of a pagan, difficult culture. Questions like this. Is God working? Is God working in this kind of a culture? Is God just giving, is he giving up on his people? Is God still working when the kingdom that we live in is so hostile to us? When the culture is so hostile to us? Is God still moving? Is he still doing something? Can he deliver me? There are these people, and they're going to harm me. They're threatening me. We'll talk about more about that as we go. But, but we feel pressure. There's, there's hostilities. There's consequences to living for God. Can he deliver me if he so chooses? And the book of Daniel, to both of these questions, gives a resounding, yes, 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 he can. Finally, the kingdom of God. Faithfulness to God, the sovereignty of God, and the kingdom of God is also uh, very prevalent. It, it plays a huge role, in particular in the prophetic uh, nature of these books. So over and against the kingdoms of this world, Daniel reveals that God's kingdom, several things. What do we see about the kingdom of God from Daniel? Let me just point out three things. Number one, what we find out about the kingdom of God is that it will be initiated by, a, and quote, an anointed one. An anointed one, a Messiah, right? It will be initiated by an anointed one, but it will be initiated when that anointed one is cut off, says the text. He will be cut off, meaning he will die. He will be killed. So the kingdom of God is initiated by death? Strange. The kingdom of God comes not by conquering, but by dying? That's what Daniel tells us is that God initiates his kingdom by an anointed Messiah who will be killed. Secondly, it tells us that this anointed Messiah, we read it, will come, will come in the clouds of heaven. Let's, let's read that together. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. 7 verses 13 and 14. It tells us that this anointed Messiah will come on the clouds, he will destroy the kingdoms of the world, and he will establish God's kingdom on the earth with the people of God with him. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. What was one of the titles of Jesus in the New Testament? He is the what? He is the son of man. One like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days, that is a reference to God, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And so what does Daniel tell us about the kingdom of God? It tells us that it will be initiated by death, that there will be one who will come in the clouds of heaven to destroy the kingdoms of the earth, their authority, their persecution, their culture that is hostile to him, and he will establish a kingdom that will never ever end. So let me, let me ask you a quick question as we close and prepare for communion. Church, Sunday school answer, who is that man? Sunday school answer is what? Jesus. Very good. You passed, you passed the test. Jesus is that man. The Bible, as we continue to, to read, fleshes this out. The New Testament fills in the gaps of Daniel's prophecy, showing that Jesus was indeed the anointed one, which simply means Messiah. He was the anointed one who was cut off. He was killed. He died in our place for our sins. He bore the wrath of God for us so that we don't have to if we believe in him. The New Testament tells us that he was raised from the dead, that he ascended into heaven, that there is a time period called the church where he initiates this kingdom of God on earth. But the New Testament also tells us that he will come back, that he will come back to fulfill and to complete this kingdom of God on earth to culminate God's rule forever and ever. And that we, if you trust in Jesus personally, if you are born again, if you trust that he is your savior, your Messiah, and you come to him simply accepting this gift of forgiveness of sins and dying on the cross for you, that you will join with him in that kingdom forever and ever and ever. So it's appropriate, I think, for us to end our time with the act of communion. And so we're going to transition now. We're going to remember this Jesus. We're going to remember our Messiah. We're going to remember the one, particularly as Daniel describes, who is cut off, who is cut off. He, he dies. The New Testament tells us that his body was torn like this bread is torn for us and that his blood, symbolized by this juice, was spilt and splattered all over the place taking God's wrath for me and you, that if you would simply believe in him, trust in him, accept him, not on any basis of anything that you could ever do to earn this favor, but you accept this free gift that you can become a Christian and not a 78% Christian, an 8% Christian, a, a real Christian who's born again, who follows Jesus. If that's you, then we invite you to come. When you're ready after a short time of prayer, we invite you to come and to take the bread and to take the juice and to worship Jesus. But if that's not you, I'd invite you to do this. I'd invite you to pray with me. We're going to pray, and that will open up our time. Pray, seek the Lord, confess sin, prepare yourself uh, to take the elements. But if that's you, and you don't know Jesus, as I pray, I'm going to lead you in a short prayer of repentance and of trust in Jesus, then you can take this as well, maybe for the first time as, 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 a, as a Christian. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you that your word has much to say on many things. In particular, you teach us how to live in the midst of a very fiery culture. And we can do that because of Jesus, our Messiah. We can do that because he lived in the midst of a fiery culture, so much so that he died that he shed his, his blood, that his body was torn uh, as our example, as we should be willing as well. We thank you that though his death was sacrificial, that it meant something, that he bore our sins, he bore our shame, and he rose to life and he defeated the grave. We're so very grateful for that. If there's a man or a woman or a young boy 
or a young girl or teenager who's never trusted in Jesus, they would say, I don't know, I don't know if I've done that. I don't know if I've trusted it in this Jesus, this Messiah personally. Then pray along with me as an act of repentance and faith in this Jesus. Pray this way. Dear God, I confess to you that I fall short of your standard. I confess that I am a sinner. I sin against you and I sin against others and I sin against myself. And I recognize that my sins were born on that cross, that you, God, loved me enough to send Jesus to pay for my sin, to offer forgiveness, to offer a resurrected eternal life, to offer a restored relationship with you. And so I trust in that free gift. I don't earn it. I don't deserve it. But I trust in what Jesus has done. Thank you, God, for saving me. Amen. If you've done that for the first time, then you, along with any other professing Christian, then come. Come and remember Jesus our Lord, our Savior, and our Messiah. Some music will play, and when you're ready, please partake. And when you're done, you're free to go. Just go in uh, humble silence.